Previously on Hound Radio's Arch Campbell podcast. You know, I'm going to retitle this podcast. What was the name of that movie? (laughs) (laughs) And who was that actor? He was in that film. Remember that that movie with with The Thing? The Arch Campbell podcast featuring Arch, Lou Katz, and a cast of thousands begins now. So here we are, Lou, with another uh, stab at figuring out what's going on in the world of entertainment. Arch, today is a very special day. Oh, is it? Because it's our, can I have a drum roll, please? (laughs) Our 100th episode. Really? Yes. We've done this a hundred times. <laughs> Today. Wow. Our very our very first one was was on April 14th of 2019. So this is our 100th no episode. Kidding. No. A hundred times. <laughs> well, maybe we'll figure it out. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so look, I'm very excited uh, about our guest today. And so I'm glad we're having this special episode. First of all, I always love uh, hearing and talking to my friend, Tim Gordon. Uh, You may know he's president of the Washington Area Film Critics. He's head of the Lakefront Film Festival. And you see him on Around Town on Channel 26. And hello, Tim. Arch Campbell, it is always a pleasure to be with you. Always. (laughs) You've got that sly smile. You and Lou, you too. (laughs) And... Joining Tim and me is uh, a man I very much admire, a writer-reporter. He's one of the great names to come from the Washington Post style section, the author of several books, including The Butler. He's now a professor at Miami University and a Guggenheim Fellow. I met him during the lead-up to the film of the article that became The Butler. He has a new work, Colorization, tracing a hundred years of black cinema. And uh, Tim and I are both excited to welcome Will Haygood to this podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, it's wonderful to be here. Well, uh, we're very excited about your book and uh, talking to you. But before we do, we got a little bit of regular business on this podcast because this podcast always begins asking our guests, what are you watching in this new hybrid theater streaming screening world? So, Will, I want you to think about that, and I'll put Tim Gordon on the spot first. So, Tim, what are you watching? Well, I mean, I'm watching all of this stuff that's watching in advance, all the stuff that's opening this weekend. So, of course, No Time to Die was last week with uh, James Bond. Uh, we got Needle in the Time Stack that's going to be out this Friday with Cynthia Revo, Orlando Bloom, Leslie uh, Odom Jr., and Frida Pinto. The past doesn't just belong to old photos and history books anymore. Now we can live it, touch it, change it. And also the fabulous Last Duel uh, with Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Adam Driver, and um, Julie Comer, I think her name yeah. is. Yeah, from Killing yeah. Eve. Yes. The most unspeakable charge has been brought against you. Jacques Legree entered our home. He attacked me. The accusation is false. I'm innocent! I request a duel to the death. 
If you lose, your wife will suffer dire consequences. I had a lot of fun watching The Last Duel. Can't, watch, can't wait to watch that again. <laughs> so is that your recommendation for this week, The Last Duel? The Last Duel and Neil and the Time Stack, those two, uh, I think, are absolutely great for, for obvious I, different reasons. I, I want to ask you, uh, did No Time to Die, is that the movie that will re-energize going to the movies? Is that is that virus worthy? <laughs> well, I, here's here. I, I I've read a lot of reviews on No Time to Die, and I absolutely don't agree with half of them because everybody's talking about this being the quintessential Bond film. Um, the third act left me cold. I, I, I'm still yeah. stunned with with the decision that the filmmakers made with what they did in that film. And I can't believe that everybody else is fine with it. I'm like Sean Connery, Roger Moore, uh, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan. None of the greats had to had to have their story conclude like Daniel Craig's. And I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a little too long. And a little, uh, a, a, three a little hours. Long. I'm being I'm being nice, Arch. It was a little too long, and I thought the chemistry between Leah Sadu. And Daniel Craig didn't match up, so yeah. I have issues so, with it. Time to die. There, okay. Well, we're in a good mood here. We got Tim Gordon <laughs> being nice. And having said that, Will Haygood, when you're not writing books, what are you watching? Are you going to the movies, or are you watching streaming, or what are you watching? This week, I've been watching the whole season, Mayor of East Town. Oh, with no. wow. Kate Winslet and very, very well done, very well written. And it's one of those rare shows, uh, you know, where, you know, it has characters in it uh, who are black, but you don't see anyone making a big deal of the fact that the characters are black, that the cast is multiracial. It feels seamless it really does and i i really like that for that feature of it there is a police chief who's black there is a medical examiner who's black and there are other characters uh i don't know i i think hollywood quite possibly could be coming more woke than ever, especially when it comes to streaming small screen uh, movies. I think that's why so many filmmakers want to work on the small screen now. You, you know, you, you get the opportunity to tell more diverse stories. And I think that's important. You know, you wrote a book on uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, and I incidentally and telling everyone I know to watch uh, the PBS documentary on Muhammad Ali. Have you uh, seen any of that? No, I haven't, but I've heard about it and I'm looking forward to watching that. Well, I would recommend that to you, particularly uh, in the research and uh, the uh, project you've got going now. So tell us about colorization, a hundred years of black cinema in society. And I just want to very quickly say, that uh, this is a deep work. You hit American history, you hit cultural history, you hit racial history. And uh, let me just start by this. In your research, 
what surprised you? Uh, that besides this yeah. question. <laughs> you know that it had never been done. And I mean, mm -hmm. movies, I mean, books about movies often focus on high glamour or a sad ending. But when you look at a film and then you <laughs> jump from on screen to off screen and you tell the country what was happening in 1949 or 1959, 1969, because face it, movies are about make believe. And so the movies rarely reflect actually what's going on on the streets. I think that's why we've had so few movies about the civil rights battles in this country. I think that all of the powers that be in Hollywood want to, you know, want to slow the recognition of what really has happened in this country when it comes to segregation, when it comes to slavery. I mean, there are great dramas, Rosa Parks, and then the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, the Teal story in Mississippi, when young Emmett Teal was lynched. I mean, we still haven't had a movie about that, about Rosa Parks on the big screen. And so, you know, to merge the two stories, the fake make-believe often of Hollywood and the real drama, the real struggle that has been going on on the streets and that has, you know, informed all of us and that has made front page news. So I think, you know, the melting and melding of these two stories on screen and off screen mm -hmm. together Tim, has been the great find for me. Tim, jump in here. Well, I, I think I think Will is hitting me in my in my sweet spot because before I became a film critic, I was a black film historian and I didn't get an opportunity to get the book in advance. So when I heard Will say 100 years of film and you included Black Panther, I'm assuming that Will, the jump off point is it's because we know that, or at least I know that from 1895 is when we kind of talk about the beginning of cinema, you know, 1910, the first black uh, short film is made to pull the, I think yeah. it was called the Porter, the Pullman Porter, something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm fascinated because I really want to understand, and I have an idea of my own that I would love to develop into a book around this subject. So that's why I'm listening intently to kind of understand the concept without having read it or had any material in advance. So Arch, it's kind of difficult because I'm just listening right now. I don't really want to ask a question that's so redundant that had I read the book or had the materials and, and come across sound like a dunce. So, so you're doing a Larry King. I'm listening right now. <laughs> Larry King, you know, would never read the books. I, so I can tell both of you that uh, Will's book is deeply historic. And as he said, he goes into the stories of the of the people who made the movies and what was going on in society at that time. And uh, one of the stories I'm especially interested in, Will, is your section on Hattie McDaniel, who was uh -huh. the first Black uh, Oscar winner. And uh, 
who donated her Oscar to Howard University. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you and God bless you. Hattie McDaniel won her Oscar for Going With the Wind with Clark Gable and Vivian Orson. It was based on the Margaret Mitchell book. But when she was nominated and went to the Oscar ceremony, she was not allowed to sit at the table with the white stars. So she was off into some uh, remote corner that night. And so anyway, she wins this Oscar and, you know, years move on. And Howard University School of Drama had a little soiree for Hattie McDaniel after she won the Oscar. And she was so proud of that moment that she was being honored and recognized, while at the same time, there were some Howard students on campus at the time who did not think that her role as a maid, Mammy was the name of the maid, uh, that that role should have been honored like that. Uh, they looked at it as a, as a tribute to mock Black life. Anyway, Hattie McDaniel had a soiree at Howard University, and she said, when the time has come, I'm going to bequeath my Oscar to Howard University. And Howard University was very happy about that. Well, she passes away in 1952. Her Oscar gets sent to Howard University. And in the 70s, someone goes looking for it, and they can't find it. Everybody is, everybody is searching small closets on campus, big closets, attics, storage rooms on campus, and they can't find Hattie McDaniel's Oscar. All sort of rumors start flying around that somebody threw it away, uh, you know. In protest. Yeah, yeah, because they were mad, you know. Uh, about the reasons that she got the Oscar. Anyway, to this day, Hattie McDaniel's Oscar has never been found. It is lost. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And that's a story of sort of two cultures viewing a film, the white culture uh, celebrating Gone with the Wind, and the black culture uh, more or less not quite punishing but not quite celebrating uh, Hattie McDaniel's uh, performance. Uh, and, and that's interesting to me, that, that duality. And uh, I think someone did throw it away in protest. She always said uh, that it was much better to play a maid than to be, be a maid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, no, very telling, very telling comment. You know, she died sad, though. I mean, you know, she heard people, officials in the NAACP who told her to her face that they didn't think she should keep on playing maids on TV or radio or in film. And she said, I have to eat. Those are the only roles that I am being offered. She wasn't offered a role to play a lawyer or a doctor or a nurse or a school teacher. She wasn't. It's sad and it's tragic. And there are so many people who don't know 
who don't know that story. So Arch, can I jump in for a second? Um, sure. I think part of what, what bothers me, because I didn't know the story of the missing Oscar, but I do know the, 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 the conflict that goes on in the African-American community at, at, with, between Hollywood and images. It's been going on since the inception of cinema, right? To Will's point, he talks about uh, people don't really understand the conditions that these artists had to actually work in. So you think about, you know, I remember having a conversation recently with a good friend of mine, Warrington Hudlin, and we were talking about Oscar Michelle. And, you know, he was he was coming down on Michelle because Michelle to him was was a black man who was making films that were not necessarily he wasn't telling black stories, but he was telling white stories and blackface and you know, and I was telling him, I said, you know, you got to think this is 1920. It's a very different society. We're in the middle of Jim Crow. So, you know, I say all that to say that as we talk about, you know, my favorite phrase, cancel culture, right? That goes on how we always like to revisit. And if people don't think the way we think, we want to cancel them. Um, there were there were black people who wanted to cancel Hattie McDaniel back in the day because the Will's point she wasn't being offered a bevy of roles. There was a certain window, a certain pocket that these act that they were looking at black actors pre-1950. You know, Sidney Poitier comes along, he kind of changes the game, opens the door, at least a crack in 1950 to what we have today. But it's a very different time. And we have to look at these films that Will is, Will is talking about, these pre-1950 films in an entirely different light because it was a very different culture at that time. And I think you're opening the door for Will to uh, get into the 70s. Uh, and incidentally, uh, very often, I feel like we're reliving the 70s all over again. I hope not. <laughs> well, I no, hope I'm, saying, you, I'm saying hope I hope not, because the 70s went away, and all that work went away. We had to wait another, I don't know, 10 years until the Spike Lees, the John Singletons, and all of these guys come along. So I hope not. I hope we continue to work, uh, not just working in pockets, and then we're out of style for 10 years, and then we're back. Well, so I, I hope, hope we do it better this time. I want to uh, get us on to Melvin Van Peebles, oh, yeah. the father of Mario Van Peebles, who is credited as the father of uh, blaxploitation uh, films. And uh, tell us about your segment on him and the films of the 70s. Yes, that was really a wonderful golden era. And it was uh, somewhat shepherded by Melvin Van Peoples. Um, he wanted to make movies. He had been a taxi driver in San Francisco and he you know, started writing short stories and then he started making short films and he flies cross country to the New York Film Festival and wants to show them some of his short films. Then he flies back to San Francisco and then somebody uh, says, hey, you know, it might be cool for you to go to France, you know, and live over there. And he does. And he goes to France and he starts making films in France. He even got some grants. You know, it's just like Richard Wright and Baldwin and all of the Black expatriates who went to mm -hmm. Europe during the 40s because Europe was much more open, much more tolerable uh, to accepting their genius. So Milvin Van Peoples, uh, you know, he became known in French and he came back to America and he made a really satiric movie in with Godfrey Cambridge called 
watermelon man about a man who is white who wakes up and looks in the mirror and he's black and all of a sudden he gets subjected uh to the daily racism that so many blacks have had to face and so that movie got uh very noticeable reviews and uh made money and it got uh it got Melvin Van Peoples another offer to make another movie. So he wanted to make a movie about a stud, about a black man uh, who loved sex uh, with women, black and white, uh, and who is involved in the hippie movement and involved in the movement for civil rights and is attacking the best way he can police brutality. And so the studio looks at his script and says, what in the hell are you talking about? That sounds absolutely wacko, crazy. We don't want to make that movie. So he got upset and he said, well, if I want to get this movie made, I'm going to have to star in it. I'm going to have to raise my own money and I'm going to have to go outside of the mainstream Hollywood film system. And he did. He filmed the movie, $500,000 on a very tight budget. Uh, he raised the money himself, and it was called Sweet Sweetback's Bad Ass Song. Well, it's a film about um, a brother who uh, changes from an exploiter of the black community, he's a stud, a pimp, into a brother who uh, wants to aid the community or wants to um, stand up on his own hind legs, which of course uh, is against uh, the man's idea he's cut out for. It opened in two cities in America. Detroit and Atlanta, and then it caught, it just uh -huh. went top of the box office. Melvin Van Peebles became a star. Other black movies got made with stars like Pam Greer and Yachtbet mm -hmm. Cota and Billy D. Williams and Richard Pryor, and Fred Williamson and Jim Brown. And it was this whole movement that became known as the black exploitation movement. Now, some people have mocked that moment in cinema history, but a lot of actors, actresses made money, you know, and they had a chance to be in films, Foxy Brown, Truck Turner. You know, I watched Shaft, uh, Shaft in the last year or so. That That is, it's uh, like a cultural artifact now. It is. So it's Superfly. And I mean, uh -huh. mm -hmm. a whole movement started. Uh, you know, all throughout the 70s, as I, and I was talking to a friend last night, when I was a kid in the 60s, my mother, she would give me 50 cents to go to the movie on Sundays. And I was, you know, the, you know, fifth and sixth grade. And I would see stars like Robert Mitchum, Lee Marvin, Liz Taylor, Richard Burton, John Wayne, Jerry Lewis, uh, all white stars at the Garden Theater in my hometown during the 60s. Me and my sisters looked up at that 60-foot big screen during the 60s and never saw a Black star at that, at that neighborhood theater. So what does that do to a little Black kid who's looking at a major cultural uh, moment Movies, you know, movies are a big moment in this country's mindset. Everybody goes to the movies on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And for years, I didn't see anybody who looked like me on the big screen. It wasn't until the 70s 
with the black exploitation movement that I finally saw people who looked like me on the movie screen. Yeah, and let's also mention In the Heat of the Night, in the which heat of, uh, riveted audiences in, was it 1970? 67. 67. Yeah. That, Rod, uh, yeah, a big moment in that movie was when, was when Sidney Poitier was in the flower shop and the white man called him the N-word and Sidney Poitier slapped him. I mean, you rarely saw a white man being assaulted by a black man in Mississippi on screen or off. On I understand off. when that played in theaters, the audience would erupt. Yes, they would. People were shocked. People were absolutely, you know, absolutely shocked. Well, you get on into the 80s and Spike Lee and his uh, impact, and that brings us up to Black Panther. And is Black Panther the high point of your history, or where, where are we on that? You know, in a real way, you know, I think the high point evolved in 2008 when this country elected a Black man to the White House. And Barack Obama suddenly became the most powerful man in the world. And so Hollywood had to recognize that and say, wow, I mean, goodness, he's more powerful than any Hollywood white CEO. So we got to get with the times. We cannot be as racially obtuse or narrow-minded as we have been in the past. So, you know, it takes three, four or five years to get a movie made. So you look at 2008. And then you go to 2013 and you had five films that year. You had Fruitvale Station, you had The Butler, you had 12 Years a Slave, you had uh, Mandela, Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom, and there's a fifth movie in there. But I remember reading a story in Vanity Fair, I think it was, and the headline was, Hollywood finally gets emancipated. So that was 2000. 13. That was a very unique moment. But then when Obama left office, we didn't see that type of filmmaking, um, you know, and so, which is another reason why I think so many filmmakers have gone to the small screen, you know, you know, Hollywood was hit like the world was with the murder of George Floyd. So this book starts in 1915 with D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. And then it goes 100 years later, and we're in 2017, and we're in Charlottesville, and we see the same KKK flags, the Nazi marches, you know, you know in this 100-year history. Those scenes on the street were a shock to white America. Many Blacks have seen other Blacks shot, killed by law enforcement, and nothing happens to law enforcement because, you know, you have these juries that wholeheartedly will take the word of white police officers. They just will not challenge them. And I think that the out-in-the-open murder of George Floyd uh, shocked the senses of the world. You know, so if Hollywood changes behind that, it will be a good thing and a long overdue thing. That's the reason why I had mentioned, 
this series that I was watching, Mayor of Easttown. Mm -hmm. There are Black in this series in a very organic manner. Uh, and Hollywood hasn't gotten over that hurdle yet. We see very few mixed race couples in Hollywood movies, and yet, you know, one can walk through a city park in Dayton or St. Mm -hmm. Louis. Chicago and see mixed race couples holding hands and walking down the street every day. But Hollywood is still afraid of race. I think it's getting better, but it's still notable. Wow. Well, it's quite a history. And uh, let me uh, wrap this up by asking both of you, uh, what's the importance of, you know, what is the place now of film and streaming in culture? And what's the importance Will, you want to go first or you want me to go first? <laughs> no. I'll go. I don't know, but I know it's something. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I, I, I can theorize for you. Uh, the difference, I think, is that, to Will's point, uh, there, there are greater opportunities that exist now for uh, black, black creatives and storytellers and filmmakers that didn't exist 25, 30, 40 years ago. Um, we, with the advent of the Netflixes and Amazons and Hulu and all of the other multiple streaming services that exist, it, it, it is not cheaper in order to make movies now. Well, actually, in a way it is because of technology, but there are more outlets that people can get stories told than they were right. previously. And I think right. that to me is the biggest difference. Yes, that's so true, Tim. I think too that film has become so worldly and I mean somebody can make a film and have it come out and then three days later that film is being watched by people in Sweden or France and so I think filmmakers you know can trust that they can make money in foreign countries uh, through streaming service and we all have to face this fact Hollywood does listen to the cash register they will listen to the cash register and so these filmmakers, I think, realize that the canvas is much wider now and the canvas is much, much more broader now. And face it, film is the one thing everybody seems to have in common. We all watch movies. And well, well, I imagine you're on the way to a big uh, book tour and uh I think your book is uh, really something and quite important, and, uh, and it's a deep well. So it's colorization, and uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing and hearing from you all over the place. Very quickly, uh, let's take a break for our enabler, which is Hound Radio and Lou Katz. Thank you, guys. And while we're on the topic of movies, Hound Radio's prize closet is loaded with great Movies. I've got Blu-ray, DVD, digital copies of two movies in my hand. One is F9, The Fast Saga, and the other is Hitman's Wife, Bodyguard. Bang, bang, shoot them up, crash, boom. It's these kind of movies that I have for you right now. If you would like to win your own copy, all you need to do is go to houndradio.com and register at our website, houndradio.com. And register right there. Arch, back to you. Hey, Will. Hey, good. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours, and I'm so uh, thrilled that you would be on this podcast with us. Oh, thank you. It was an honor, and I'm a huge fan of yours. You, are, you have done so much for film and film history and film knowledge. 
And Tim Gordon, you're uh, one of the guys I love uh, seeing around town and talking to. And I know you'll be uh, busy and I'm always interested in uh, what you're watching. What are we going to recommend for the weekend? The Last Duel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait to see that, Tim. I'm looking forward to seeing it. That opens. Yeah, I screamed like a little, a little, uh, a little schoolgirl watching those scenes in the third act. Like, ooh, oh my god! <laughs> oh, I can't wait to watch that. Then it's, it's very I, violent and very brutal. That's all I'll tell you. Ridley Scott does not hold back. I love having Tim Gordon on because he's the only guy in town who's got a better, bigger laugh than I do. <laughs> Thanks, so uh, thank you for listening, and we will uh, see you next week. This is the Cats Podcasting System, where it's not just a podcast, but a podcast.